2: The Starbucks Pistachio Latte will transport you to your happy place. The comforting flavor of pistachio, warm espresso and milk, all with a brown buttery topping, makes today a good day. Order ahead on the Starbucks app.
1: Welcome to Let It Roll, the podcast about how and why popular music happens with host Nate Wilcox. Be sure and subscribe to the Let It Roll podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Podomatic, and check out our website at letitrollpodcast.com. You can now follow us on Twitter, at Let It Rollcast, and we'd love to hear what you think, so don't be shy about tweeting at us or commenting on our website. This week, author Ted Anthony joins Nate to discuss his book, Chasing the Rising Sun, The Journey of an American Song. In this episode, Ted tells Nate about his obsession with the song House of the Rising Sun and its journey from the hills of Kentucky to New York to London and all around the world. He also discusses some of the many people who've interpreted the song, including Bob Dylan, Pete Seeger, Lead Belly, and the animals. Pop in those earbuds and enjoy. Enjoy.
0: It's time to let it roll. Today I'm joined by Ted Anthony, author of Chasing the Rising Sun The Journey of an American Song. Ted, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks for having me. And this is just a fascinating book. Ed Ward actually hipped me to it. And it tells the story of your obsession with the song House of the Rising Sun. How did that start?
3: (laughs) Well, So, this was um, quite a while ago. This was uh, the, um, I I believe it was 1998 or 99, and I was in a Thai restaurant in Keene, New Hampshire, of all places, with um, someone who was my new girlfriend at that point and who would later become and remains my wife. Um, And as we were ordering, we heard background music. Uh, they call it Muzak, but I don't think they use that term anymore too much. But um, it was quiet and it was very, very uh, um, in the distance. And we, we said, that song sounds really familiar. What is that? And after a while, I realized that um, it was a version of House of the Rising Sun, uh, very, very different from the versions you usually hear, very quiet and muted. And as I got to thinking about it, it kind of hit me, and, and I don't generally believe in epiphanies, but this one actually did hit me. It kind of hit me that the, um, the story of how this song traveled from its uh, very, very distant origins to end up in a Thai restaurant in Keene, New Hampshire, was kind of a stand-in for the, the story of um, American music in the 20th century and how it's moved around. And so from then, I was hooked because I, I love stories that trace back to other things. And uh, I, I dug into it, and uh, it turned out that I couldn't stop.
0: Yeah, I mean, this is like kind of the rabbit trail of all rabbit trails, but you've documented it all and done the research, traveled, bought CDs, which sort of dates the book. But that's what you were doing when you, you were researching this in the 90s and the knots. So it was all about CDs and then MP3s. And it's just a great story. And and yeah, you, you you talk about how it's the story of American culture, but it's also, you say, it's the story of technology, globalization, packaging, marketing, and the rise of recorded sound and that definitely wraps it up and you trace the story back first you you debunk some dead ends like what were the dead ends the things that you thought might be true about the song that turned out not to be
3: well, there are a lot of things around there. I mean, this is a song that has resonated for so many people, and it's become uh, an American standard. And because of that, everybody thinks they know where it came from. And the, the most common one, uh, by far, was the people who would tell me pretty flatly that, oh, the Animals wrote that in 1964. And uh, the part, of, part of the reason I became so interested and obsessed with this song is because people... Believe that things appear right when they first see them. Uh, when I was growing up, I was always fascinated by the notion uh, of, of meat in grocery stores and how you know we don't we don't see where it comes from. We just see that it ends up in uh, in styrofoam and, and saran wrap. And it's the same with music. You hear a, a song uh, on the radio, or you hear a song in your Air AirPods or what have you, and you you think, oh, that song just arrived here to, to, to please me. And when you start digging, you realize that uh, there's so much more, and as you say, it's a real rabbit hole. So that uh, that, that, that notion that it would, began in 1964 was uh, was very, very common. And then when I started digging, I found other songs called Rising Sun, that, uh, some of which had absolutely nothing to do with, uh, with the, the, the song that I was re- researching. Some of them go back to 1920s pure blues, uh, Delta blues, um, I believe there was one that was Kansas City blues, and they were wonderful songs and it exposed me to a whole range of music that i hadn't really delved into before but uh but they had nothing to do with the song itself um and i guess the last category if you're putting them into buckets the last category of uh misimpressions about it is what it's about and where. I mean, we know this is uh, from the lyrics. It's a house in New Orleans. They call the rising sun. And uh, uh, allegedly it's a, it's a bordello, a house of ill repute. But there is a lot of different information out there. The song is very stretchable. And sometimes it appears to be about a prison. Sometimes it appears to be about a gambling hall. Sometimes it's not about New Orleans. I ran into a version of it that explicitly uh, said it was in Baxter Springs, Kansas, the house of the rising sun. Uh, So the the notion of what the story is about and where was also the subject of a lot of misimpressions. And I realized as I went that this was very natural that when you uh, have a a piece of, of folk content that's spreading out and being retold. It's a little bit like a game of telephone, and each person tells it Similar to the person they heard it from, but not quite the same. And each, then the next person does the same thing, and eventually the the roads diverge, and you have something that is not only very different, but sometimes tailored to the circumstances that uh, that the singer is in. Whether the singer is in another place, whether the singer is experiencing another kind of misery. So it's that it's that dance between the specific and the universal that I think causes a lot of those misimpressions. Because I wouldn't even call them misimpressions anymore. I think I think that they're more really uh, different permutations of this song and this this story that can come out in all kinds of different ways.
0: And ultimately you trace it to a version that spawned the versions that then spawned the animals version. And that version was not the first version to be recorded. And we'll come back to the first recorded version. But the version that you pretty much identify as the wellspring from which the popular and known versions came from was recorded by a woman named Georgia Turner, recorded by a man named Alan Lomax, of a woman named Georgia Turner singing. Tell us a little bit about those two.
3: Well, Alan Lomax was a song collector. He was uh, um, a folk musicologist who worked at the Library of Congress uh, with his father, John Lomax, who had been collecting songs for, for many, many decades at that point, first on paper and then when recorded technology became available. Uh, so Alan and his father and eventually just Alan or Alan and his wife would go out uh, on these, these field trips with this huge Presto brand recorder in their trunk and they'd uh, travel around to, to small towns and rural areas setting up, um, setting up appointments with people who knew songs who, who were known folk song uh, I guess aficionados isn't strong enough a word people to whom this music was a fabric of their existence um, and many of them were older they, they did a lot of capturing folks uh, voices before they, they passed away one of the people that they originally recorded was, was Lead Belly who went on to be quite famous and uh, their treatment of him was a, a bit controversial for a while but uh on september 15th 1937 they were in middlesboro kentucky and um through a couple acquaintances they had gathered a few people in a, a section of the the town it was a mining town a section called no town which was a very very poor area and a 15 year old girl named georgia turner was one of those who came out and she sang for him uh a very recognizable, although not in the, in the minor key, version of House of the Rising Sun. And it talked all about the things we're familiar with now, about it being the ruin of many a poor girl, about uh, uh, my mother is a tailor, she sews those new blue jeans, um, about the, my, my personal favorite verse about the one foot on the platform and the other one on the train and going back to New Orleans to wear that ball and chain. So all the things we know were in that version. And he, um, he recorded it, he took it down and he ran into, in the next couple of weeks as he traveled around Kentucky, he ran into a couple other versions sung by men, uh, with a lot in common, but with slightly different verses. And when he went back to Washington and to New York, he, uh, stitched them together into a, a version of the song that was published in a 1941 book called Our Singing Country. And uh, that was a, a pretty seminal book to, to folk musicians of the time. I mean, it was right on the cusp of World War II and uh, it was when artists like Leadbelly, like Woody Guthrie, like um, Josh White were emerging in the the folk music scene of the early 1940s in New York. And to some extent, this uh, proved to be a, a Bible for them. Some of the songs they already knew and added to, some of them they didn't know and what what Lomax ended up doing by publishing this book and sort of inserting it into that community was he made sure that um, all of these Folk singers who would go on to become people we think of as immortals now, but they had this source material that, uh, that, that, they're always looking for material, always looking for fresh songs to sing. And so, uh, they each adapted it to their own sets and it began to be amplified and it began to be heard around New York, uh, and in the, the cafes and places where this stuff was played. And from there it's set on its journey. I, uh, I, I framed this book as a journey of a song from, the local to the regional to the national to the global. And that was one of those inflection points where it went from the regional to the national. And, and Lomax was like this this vector for the virus. And a lot of these songs that were in our singing country, they became standards because of the group that started singing them and the and the fame and notoriety that they achieved.
0: And before we get too far, let's hear Georgia Turner singing for Alan Lomax in 1937. This is the House of the Rising Sun. that alan lomax captured in 1937 and like you said he 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 collected it and published it and in, in a book and then this book is picked up by people you mentioned lead belly and and josh white and and woody guthrie and the weavers that that we would call the first folk revivalists so they created the concept they're creating the concept of what we know is american folk music and one thing you mentioned that this wasn't the only song that lomax is brought to light that is now considered a standard, they also uh, brought out Home on the Range, Goodnight Irene, Midnight Special, Bone Parts Retreat, etc., etc. So this is just a part of a massive contribution to culture that the Lomax has made.
3: It very much is. And it's kind of staggering to look back and to see how many songs we take for granted now have their fingers on it. But I I think what's interesting to note here, I mentioned the, the notion of an inflection point. And, you look at people like uh, like like Led Belly and Josh White and Woody Guthrie in particular they were they were interpreters of this kind of stuff i mean i suppose all all uh, musicians and artists are interpreters but they were people who had one foot in what what later in the the 60s version of the folk revival people would consider Authenticity. Uh, they they came from the places where these songs were sung as folk songs uh, by people who were working, by people who were uh, experiencing subjugation, that kind of thing. But the other foot for them was in the cities, was as performers, and and in New York. And so they were the ones who interpreted this. And I think that um, that the the 1940s and that that first wave of the folk revival that you mentioned is very much a a moment where people came out of the places they were from and then became popularizers in this. So they interpreted it for future uh, generations of musicians, which as we know, would include people like Bob Dylan and the animals.
0: Yeah. And, and now let's backtrack a little bit. And and I mentioned that, that Georgia Turner's version wasn't the earliest recorded version we know of that a guy named Clarence Ashley actually recorded the song in 1933. Tell us a little bit about that and why, you know why is it that the story, to use in a way, starts with Georgia Turner and 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 Clarence's version is not a direct antecedent to Dylan and the animals, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera? Well, I mean it is it's in a, a way qu- because you, well, uh, sorry to because you do sort of allude you you think he might have been the vector that that taught Georgia Turner the song. I think it's quite a
3: possibility. Um, Clarence Ashley was a fascinating man and he um he was performing in medicine shows where uh patent medicine was sold and uh un- under tents in uh, the the traveled the country and mu- music came along with them and he was in this uh this corner of Eastern Kentucky and Eastern Tennessee and Western North Carolina, traveling around from town to town, which by the way is one of the sometimes lyrics of uh, of House of the Rising Sun. And he was playing this everywhere. And so I mean, I can't I, I can't prove it, but it's quite possible that he was a, a major major vector in that area. He was a, a wonderful uh, singer with a very nasal and uh, sort of traditionally mountain voice, and he played the banjo. Um, and he uh, he also ended up coming uh, coming back and performing for a number of years. During the the later folk revival, and worked very closely with Doc Watson. But he, um, when he recorded that in 1933, it was pretty clear that. Um he whatever he had picked up uh, when he was young, which he, he said he learned it from uh, from some of his uh, his ancestors. Whatever he picked up when he was young in 1933, the version that he recorded <clears throat> felt very much like a uh, a Jimmy Rogers song from the very beginning. He was clearly working on popularizing it when he did that recording, and uh, some of the lyrics. Although it's clearly the song "House of the Rising Sun" shares a lot with what. Uh, what was recorded of Georgia Turner, some of the lyrics are are quite different and uh, what 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 she brought to the table uh like the the, the my mother was a Taylor uh, stanza she um that verse was was what ended up in the animals recording. It was what uh, we hear mostly these days when we hear a remix of it. So I don't think that, it, that Clarence Ashley was any less of a contributor. He just uh, didn't happen to, to have sung the version that uh, was heard by a guy who could amplify it really loudly. Now, that being said, um, there 's a, a whole sort of descendant chart of ashley 's version too that uh, goes through Doc Watson and is uh, generally a much more a much more country version and did not venture into that uh, the, the electric stuff that the animals did and the, all of the global variations that went beyond that
0: and then after Lomax put it, puts it in a book and, and it and it 's popularized by that first wave of folk performers we discussed there 's a second wave of younger scholarly researchers in the 50s um, and folk performers that dive back in and a guy named John Cohen travels in the hills and he finds other people that that do that were doing versions of House of the Rising Sun and in particular a guy named Roscoe Holcomb was brought to light. Tell us a little about Roscoe and and his interaction with the song.
3: Well, Cohen went out, and Cohen was a member of a band called the New Lost City Ramblers, and he took some time away to make this pretty extraordinary black-and-white documentary that feels very ghostly when you watch it today. Um, and uh, it it follows a, a few mu- musicians in that area, and one of them, in fact, is Roscoe Holcomb, who was this, uh, this working man from uh, the hills of Kentucky who was known to be an absolutely incredible guitarist. And it was said of him that... Uh, that if you heard him play and you didn't uh, you just listen and you didn't see it, you would think that there was more than one person playing that his fingers were were that nimble. Um, and he uh, recorded this, very ethereal version that uh, uh I still struggle even at this uh this late date to to describe but it has a high falsetto uh voice he uses and um it's it's just it's it's very 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 different from anything else but uh um he was part of a a family that was itself very very musical and I had the good fortune to kind of by happenstance while I was down looking for uh for him and people who who might have known him I my my uh the, the girlfriend from the Thai restaurant had by then become uh my wife and we were on our honeymoon driving through uh through the uh, Appalachian Mountains and stopping and listening to music and we happened into this bar in Nashville where this band was playing and I just asked the, the lead singer after a set whether uh, she had ever heard of Roscoe Holcomb, and it turns out that he was her uncle and a member of her family. And so we found uh, this this rich seam of folks uh, who who were still doing. Music, the wonderful music, and uh, who knew knew him and remembered him quite well. He had gone on, thanks to in part to to that film and to some some shows that he did during the 60s. And he he also Eric Clapton was very very impressed with his ability to to play guitar. And I believe it was Dylan who referred to Holcomb's music as an untamed sense of control. So. Uh, Holcomb lived until, I believe it was the end of the 1970s and, uh, and performed and, and, uh, became effectively a professional musician in his later years. But, uh, but, but, yeah, that was, that began with, with John Cohen who went, uh, again, that, that 1960s folk revival, uh, contingent who, were looking for authenticity, uh, as uh, I think, partially as a backlash to some of what uh, had happened in the '50s with with emerging popular music and doo-wop and stuff like that, and they wanted something raw, So they uh, they went uh, down to try to find it, and that was uh, that was how Cohen and Holcomb got together.
0: And in the book, you've got a picture of Holcomb, and he's standing next to Clarence Ashley, of all people, and they look like twins. They're wearing identical hats. They both have what I would call Malcolm X glasses on, although I'm sure they didn't think of him that way. And it's funny to me because around the same time, Harry Smith, with his collection, The Anthology of American Folk Music, reintroduces Ashley and other people who are considered that the Lomaxes probably would have considered co- commercial performers, like people like Clarence who were doing, as you said, imitating Jimmy Rogers or trying to sound like Jimmy Rogers. But Harry Smith goes back to the records and he sort of redefines folk music as this old wave of records. And so it's it's very cool to me that Clarence Ashley and Roscoe Holman sort of both come back into the narrative through the second wave of of folk revivalists. And then another contemporary of John Cohen Uh, A guitarist in the village Greenwich Village named Dave Van Ronk does a version of House of the Rising Sun where he adds new chords and he takes it into the minor key.
3: Um, he does, uh, and al- although Josh White did that too in the early nineteen forties, so again provenance becomes a question here. Uh, but but Van Ronk absolutely did that, and Van Ronk was uh, was very good friends with Bob Dylan, and that was one of the one of the things that typifies this song, which is it's worth noting over and over again. A song from the folk tradition is that the uh, the arrangements of it and and how it is played are often sources of contention. And one flashpoint with that was uh, was Van Ronk was very. Close to Bob Dylan, and when Bob Dylan first recorded on his first album in uh, 1962, it was perceived by Van Ronk as uh, not cricket, if you will.
0: And let's go ahead and hear Josh White's version and hear that minor key come in. This is Josh White in House of the Rising Sun. In- was josh white bringing the house of the rising sun into the minor key which dave van Ronk either picked up from him or added creatively on his own and then bob dylan admittedly swipes it from dave van Ronk, puts it on his first album which was on columbia records didn't wasn't a big seller but after his second album was succeeded that album got around and it got to newcastle england Tell us a little bit about what happened once once it traveled across the ocean.
3: Well, there was a young man in Newcastle upon Tyne England who um, was trolling the record stores back then, and he found uh, he was aware of the song he had heard the song in some some local establishments, but uh, in I guess what was a very truncated version and uh, he comes upon bob dylan 's first album and he listens to it, and he 's like, "Wow, here is this." Amazing new young, uh, folk artist and hear all these lyrics I'd never heard of. And so he got to, to thinking about it. And, uh, this, this young man was named Eric Burden and, uh, the, the band that he was to play with was The Animals. And, uh, that's the, that is the biggest, uh, inflection point. I like to use the term inflection point. That is the biggest inflection point in the song. Two, two years later comes The Animals' very definitive and very electrified version. Uh, still in the minor key, arranged very differently. But um, Eric Burden told me very, very openly that the, the Dylan version was very much an inspiration of that.
0: But he has also claimed at various times that he had heard the Josh White version, and et cetera, et cetera. You know, tell these stories to the point that his drummer Bobby Steele said, "No way, we were doing the Dylan version."
3: People have said different things. I mean, Alan Price has long said that they did the Alan Price version. Um, I one of the things that I found in in all of this is I, I became sort of obsessed with the the uh, term version because covers are so unique and yet they are all linked to each other. And so, you know, if you can look at even within the animals, if people say different things and they say, well, where did this come from? Where didn't this come from? Whose inspiration was this? Even right down to, to things like the, the, the keyboard solo and the, uh, the famous uh, guitar riff at the beginning of the animals version. The, the, I don't think we're ever going to sort out what version was what. And I, I came to the conclusion in the end that that was okay. Because even if you have it even within a band, if you have that contentious I mean, imagine that writ large on the landscape with all of these thousands of versions that we've heard over the years.
0: And those credits for that band had a very real impact on the band because Alan Price got sole credit for the arrangement, which means he got the sole check for, you know, it was credited traditional arranged by Alan Price, meaning that's where all the royalties went.
3: Yeah, it was actually a pretty informal decision, as I understood it from Burden, that they um, uh, they said they were t- the animals were told, well, you choose one name to to appear on the on the 45, and you know, iron out the details later. And so the name that was chosen was Alan Price, and because of that, a Price, and because of that decision. Uh, a lot of royalties and recriminations would would be affected. Now, that's Burden's version. Uh, I did not uh, get a chance to talk to Price for this, and there have been uh, there have been a lot of arguments and uh, a lot of. Uh, a lot of different stories kicking around. I, I tried for a number of years to to reach Price, and he he never got back to me. He hasn't discussed it all of that much, but uh, at one point he he said that uh, it was in fact based on the on the Dylan record and uh, uh, used that chord sequence. But uh, I, I I don't really know, and I'm I'm I wish that that hadn't happened to to sort of cause fissures in that that wonderful band, and yet it is. Very, very typical of of a song like this, and of many of the songs on uh, on Harry Smith's uh, compilations as well, that these are things that uh, came out of nowhere and moved around in nowhere, and they sometimes moved around in the shadows, sometimes emerged from them for popularity, but then went back into the shadows to mutate a little bit more.
0: And one other person, or two other people who got checks around this time, probably because of the animal song, well, Alan Lomax and Georgia Turner, you actually tracked down that she actually got some money out of this.
3: I did, and that was um, that was a very, very gratifying thing. I want to tell you about that because that was, for me, the most uh, moving experience of this book, and one that I, I didn't expect, to be honest. Um, so Georgia Turner had grown up, um, had a number of children, a couple of marriages, and she died in 1969 before age 50 and of, of emphysema. And... What I was, uh, I I tracked down her oldest son, Reno Taylor, and uh, this was after I I found the recording that you just played from the Library of Congress. And in a diner in Monroe, Michigan, which was where she uh, she ended up, uh, on a handheld cassette recorder, I I played him his mother's voice, which she hadn't heard since she died in 1969. And this was we we did this in uh, in 2000, and so he had not heard his mother's voice. In effectively 31 years, and he was hearing her at age 15 like he had never heard her before. But yes, she received royalty checks, although uh, probably nowhere near enough. Uh, And there was always this sense in her family that she had something to do with this song, but no one ever was able to definitively say what. So it was a, a source of great happiness to them that uh, that their mother could be documented at being a a very very key link in something that became very important to a lot of people.
0: And you've got, and I agree that this is the most touching part of the story. And I actually broke up when I was reading uh, uh, your account of the Turner family and this song. And I wanted to quote a couple of things that you wrote about about it. You're um, talking about the journey of the song and, and saying that the song shout at us, the map sings. If you listen just right, you can hear the chorus that came before. You can hear Clarence Ashley, Roy Acuff, the Callahan brothers, Woody Guthrie, Josh White, Leadbelly, et etc., et cetera. And then you come to this point, and you can hear, too, the pretty yellow-headed miner's daughter from Kentucky who never asked for much and never got much in return. Georgia Turner, dead and silent for four decades, is still singing the blues away. And on the next page, you've got another line that touched me it says a 16 year old girl sent something on its way. It traveled to places she never imagined, but it left her behind. And this is where she ended up. That's you. You read that talking about being at her graveside. And I mean, to me, that's just very evocative writing it and, and catches some of the magic of recorded music and global culture in the 20th century and 21st century. That something like this, this, this minor's child with no money could somehow, Catch this song and send it out into the world. It's just an amazing, uh, amazing, and, and thank you for for capturing it like that. But then after the Animals blow it up, I mean, this is a massive number one hit in England. It's a massive number one hit in the U.S. They're on the Ed Sullivan show. Bob Dylan hears this, and and a lot of people credit him hearing the Animals doing a version of a song he had done with him getting the idea to go electric and. You know, House of the Rising Sun becomes you know it's one of the first four-minute rock and roll hit singles. It's a really pivotal moment in the creation of rock music that then goes on to dominate popular music for another twenty-five years or thirty years after the '60s. What happened to the song though? Did people who else picked up this this baton and ran with it?
3: Well, I want to tell you about that, but I want to get there in a little bit of a circuitous way, if that's okay, because what you mentioned. (laughs) <laughs> what you mentioned, this this notion of how it, um, as, as I guess I put it, it went from the folkways to the highways and beyond. I, um, I'm a journalist for the Associated Press, and I've been for a number of years, and I've had the good fortune both to be able to cover American culture uh, for for great periods of time and also work overseas. I've worked in, in China. I've uh, worked in Thailand. I've, I've been all over the place. And one of the things that, that never fails to strike me is, How quickly we've lost the sense of amazement at this stuff. And, you know, I mean, maybe I, I can be accused of being a romantic. My kids do that all the time. But, you know, they can access in their pockets now things that we had to, you know, even in 2000, I had to search multiple record stores to find, you know, the fact that I I searched for months for that, that Georgia Turner recording and finally found it in a a corner of the library of Congress. And, uh, and now you can just quickly get it on the internet. And so we're we're only one generation removed from really having to search for these things. And now they're all stitched together. And now everything is not only connected to everything else, but everything, in some ways is everything else. There's a, um, a line that uh, uh, I quote from Tom Joe to Woody Guthrie's song uh, that says, everybody might be just one big soul that looks that way to me. And every time, you know, I I think about this song, I think about that. I recently moved back to the States after four years in Thailand, and there was music I heard in northern Thailand both in voice and in instrument that sounded to me like Appalachian music from the 1920s. And, I mean, I I don't think they're related, but the, the connections that we can make and the connections that, that, that Georgia Turner caused that she'd never really know about by singing that one song on that particular day at that you know quick recording session. That's that's the kind of thing that that is to me the engine that drives this book, and I think it still drives things. And to to now get back to your question, after my my amazingly lengthy detour, um, it touches all of these different bands and all of these different genres. And I remember the first thing that I was amazed about when I started doing research for this story was I found you know, just my first record store pass and I found a reggae version, you know, and I I found a funk version and, uh, I, I found a, a classical music version. And, um, the, the, the notion that, uh, I, uh, uh the, the um, line that we use, the the slogan of America, is "A e pluribus unum, of many, one," and uh, uh, it speaks of unification. But I, I like to think of this as uh, of one many. And every th- place I found had a different version of this song that you know had some of the same lyrics that that echoed Georgia Turner's uh, singing, but was something an entirely different experience that came from all of these other traditions, and that somehow. Even though it was a cover, somehow each one, well, maybe there are a couple that aren't, but most of them managed to be soulful and original and. Infuse their own traditions into it, so uh, that was the thing that was most staggering to me and I got um, when I did this book I, I got some nice reviews, and the the negative ones, many of them focused on the fact that uh, I spent an entire chapter and a half on on detailing different covers and I will allow that I was prone to excess on this obsession, but I still remain fascinated by. Uh, all of these different ways that it popped out. I remember um, finding it on on random CDs and uh, the pirated CDs in in China in uh, 03 and 04, and being amazed that it had gotten to those corners. So this this ability to to spread out. There are a few songs that are like that, and I think that House of the Rising Sun is because a because it's a compelling melody, uh, b because and being a folk song if it's uh, it, it's in the public domain and if it's arranged uniquely it's free to use that that can't be factored out but i think it also has as i said this combination of being a universal story about somebody who was given to excess and made mistakes and then had to pay for the wages of sin and something very specific which is you know a house new orleans the name of the house you know and so it was they had enough narrative threads to be a story but it was stretchable enough to be a story that everybody could fit to their own circumstances and their own traditions
0: and so let's hear one of those versions and this is not even a version of the song this is the blind boys of alabama doing amazing grace but with the melody of house of the rising sun so let's hear the alabama the blind boys of alabama
2: Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved the rich
0: like me. And that was the Blind Boys of Alabama doing what you call a haunting version of "Amazing Grace," adapting the melody of "House of the Rising Sun." and you know there's other versions like that that you document like Wycliffe Jean did a song called Sang Fezi, which uses the melody in the background tell us a little bit about these versions and and how the melody as well as the lyrics are getting around
3: yeah, I think that, I mean, there's, there is certainly something haunting about that, that minor key approach to it, whether you attribute it to Josh White or Dave Van Ronk or whoever, uh, that, that, that adds an element of mystery. It elevates it a little bit. It, it, it takes it up into the mountains sort of metaphorically. Not, not necessarily Appalachian Mountains, but it's, it's, it takes a song and adds a, an additional layer to it, uh, and I heard that a number of times. One of my favorites was um, a, a song by a, a band two women who uh, called themselves the Moners in North Carolina, and they uh, they did a song called Paradise Club, which was about a specific uh, strip joint in rural North Carolina and the the travails of the the women who worked there, uh, but it, it used. In, throughout almost all of the song. It used the the melody of House of the Rising Sun, and it obviously kept the thematic nature of it, but, uh, but it was an entirely different song. And so that, that notion of it being stretchable uh, uh, remains there, too. And I think that um, I, I have to admit that there's been more than 10 years have passed since I wrote this book, and I have kept up with some versions, but not all. But I would imagine that in an era of sampling and an era of, of sort of collage that um, in some ways you can trace back to Dylan. In some ways you can trace all the way back to the the Clarence Ashley and the medicine show, pulling from this uh, this pool of folk lyrics that were kicking around America after the civil war. But we've always um, we've always used things to make other things. It's like the, the Christmas fruitcake that you use making a, um, you you make using a piece of last year's Christmas fruitcake. And we've always, we've always built uh, on the, the, Things that came before, and I think that that the um, the Wycliffe version you mentioned and the Moners, those are examples of that. Those are things that were inspired by what came before and decided to take it in a very different direction. But somehow that uh, that soul of the piece remains.
0: And and the book, you also talk about something you call the village, and and you say that it's sort of. Uh... A 19th early late 19th early 20th century American Oz, and if it had a phone directory, it would include names uh, like Willie and Polly and Tom Dooley and Little Sadie, Little Sadie, and and John Henry and and you you and Stagger Lee, and you you see the House of the Rising Sun as as a key part of that village, and you tie it also to Grill, what Grail Marcus calls the Invisible Republic. Talk about those concepts a little bit and how that played into your understanding of the song.
3: Well, I think a lot even today, and I'm I'm working on another piece currently that sort of touches on these themes. Uh, this notion of what happens to fictional characters that uh, get put through stuff all the time. You know, I mean, you think of a folk song, and you think of um, you think of 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 somebody like you know John Henry. You know, he. Uh, Steel-driving man who who dies over and over again every time someone sings the song, um, or the in *House of the Rising Sun*, the the boy or the girl who has to go back and wear that ball and chain, whether it's uh, metaphorical or or actually physical. When when you're thinking about a prison, that we have songs and we have you know, recurring characters in comic books. I mean the yeah, you know, I, I feel very badly for some of the the people in the, the Marvel movies and the comic books because they keep having to live all of these miseries over and over again in different issues and different origin stories. I mean how many times has, has Peter Parker gotten bit by that damn radioactive spider in our lifetime? I I just the the notion of and it's I, I realize it's fanciful, but the notion of fictional characters You know, being put through stuff because that's what a story is. A story features challenge and travails and things like that. And, and this village to me, I, I, it was sort of an organizing principle for me. All of these different songs that I was exposed to, Appalachian music, you know, Delta blues, all, all of these places where people sang out their miseries and they sang out their experiences and they dealt with them in music and song. And, I, I just started imagining this place where all of these, these characters lived. And it, it for me at that time in my life, it felt very late 19th century, early 20th century. It felt like almost like a landscape where all of these stories played out. And um, my, my favorite movie of all time, we will not surprise you, is Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? Uh, by the Cohen brothers. And it deals with a lot of these folk music traditions. And it's, uh, it, it, it is a... a Depression-era parable of James Joyce's Ulysses, but it's this quest across the landscape of the South in which uh, many, many songs and many, many characters are encountered. And uh, as someone who believes in place is very much a driver of, of human existence and human sensibility, it, it, it worked for me to picture all of the denizens of these songs in a place and who knows, maybe interacting with each other. I, I, I recognize it stretches the metaphor. There's a, a Josh Ritter song that he wrote some years back, maybe 15 years ago called folk Bass, in which he combines a bunch of the traditional folk songs. Like, um, uh, he, he, he has a uh, uh, staggily in there and he has a, uh, an image from, um, from Barbara Allen and a couple other of the the folk songs from the British tradition and from the 1800s. And he puts them together, and in the end, everybody dies, which I suppose is what happens with a lot of Appalachian folk songs. But this notion that, that there are these characters and they're reflections of our human experience and that uh, they they say in some ways what we can't say about ourselves, I it helped me to think about that in that respect. And when when I encountered Griel Marcus writing about the Invisible Republic, which uh, was later the, retitled the Old Weird America, I like Invisible Republic much better. But it was all about these people who weren't empowered, and these people who, you know, didn't necessarily have the amplification devices that you and I have, or the ability to be heard. And that was very appealing because talking about these songs and talking about the people who sang them in this book, not just House of the Rising Sun, but others. they Those things uh, enabled me to give a voice in some way to some of these people who I would never know and who, although I felt very close to, I was obviously very, very far removed from.
0: And you also, not only did you sort of research through the the world of the imagination to find the song, you also talked to a lot of people who, and researched the reality of of the House of the Rising Sun. What, what was the ultimate answer? Did Was there a House of the Rising Sun in New Orleans? <laughs> what was
3: the ultimate answer? So um, the, the cop-out of my book was also, I think, the calculus that, that made me happy about it, which is that I set out trying to find the origin of the song and the original House of the Rising Sun. And I did not do that. But what the book became about was not where it started, but how it moved around and who carried it. And uh, so I rationalization, though, that may be, I was actually happy with that because it to me turned out to be more interesting and much more of a, of an excuse to explore the world. Um, that being said, uh, there is still the question of whether there was this house in new Orleans. And I went there a number of times during this research. Um, my final time, I, Encountered an archaeologist who was doing research and uh, uh, an actual dig at a place in the French Quarter that uh, may or may not have been called the House of the Rising Sun. And she found an uh, or the Rising Sun Hotel, um, and she found some intriguing artifacts, including some fragments of rouge pots, if uh, if memory serves. And it was one of those things that would be very, very easy to. Pretend was incontrovertible proof. Of course, it was not. It was a fascinating, uh, data point in all of it. But I mean, I've, I've concluded. And there were other places in, in the French quarter that, uh, that may or may not have, have had something to do with the tradition. Uh, there was, a, a, a madam named Marianne Le Soleil Levant, which, uh, if I'm, I, I, I'm remembering that correctly, the, the, whose name in French would mean the rising sun. But, Whether all this happened or not, I I really have no idea, and I'm okay with that. Uh, Again, that stretchability. People think about New Orleans. The song points them toward there, but everything I found suggests that this song came together in Appalachia and probably with some contribution from old English and Scotch-Irish folk ballads and had nothing to do with New Orleans in the end. New Orleans was, um, in the 19th century, was very much this... This terminus of the railroad, the city of allure and and to some extent uh, sin, and where where people of different traditions mixed in a way that didn't happen in uh, in other communities, and it was at the end of the railroad. So a lot of these Appalachian communities that were urbanizing and that were um uh, connect suddenly being connected by trains uh, to. The bottom of the land, which was uh, New Orleans, a lot of the trains ran down through the southern states and ended up in New Orleans. So it's no wonder that uh, that was a source of some imagery and some legend. Uh, right. But in terms of a real House of the Rising Sun, I don't think so. I mean, I think that um, Alan Lomax, much later, after I guess 16 years after Georgia Turner, he recorded an old folk singer named Harry Cox in. Uh, in England, who who sang a version, although the tune was entirely different, something that was clearly a version of "House of the Rising Sun," um, and it mentioned that the house was in Lowestoft, uh, a town on the eastern coast of, of England. And so, I don't think that this was originally New Orleans. I think somebody added it at some point. That's my, in my heart of hearts, I believe that. And just like the Animals' version took root and spread out so many years later to versions that that keyed off of it i'm sure that there was probably some itinerant folk singer who decided that new orleans would be a uh, a good locale for this song and make it more evocative and that is what spread out but who knows i mean the the like i said i'm i am perfectly satisfied not knowing because the things that i do know now after this this quest are the more interesting ones how people live their lives how they sang their songs how they took different pieces of music to different places that to me ultimately was both the rationalization and the central heart of the book
0: and let's hear one more version of of the song this is one that i think came out after you wrote the book but that you hipped me to as we were preparing for this interview and this is snake farm doing rising sun
1: Platform.
0: And, one foot and that was snake farm doing rising sun a 21st century take on the song and why did you pick that version and, and what does it mean to you i like that very much because it felt you know
3: i learned to trust my intuition during the um during the the reporting and the research for this book and it's hard to say with with songs what's more real and what's more authentic. I mean, we talked about Woody Guthrie having a foot in both worlds. Was he a performer or was he singing from experience? Both. You can never nail it down. But, but something in the Snake Farm, uh, It's the, the, the CD is called Songs from My Funeral, and they have a version of John Henry and a version of Tom Dooley and a version of St. James Infirmary and uh, In the Pines. And those in the house of the rising sun song here which is just called rising sun and the lyrics are rearranged they they feel very modern they use a lot of uh, a lot of electronic music and yet when i listen to those i can feel the village and i know that sounds silly i'm a i'm a journalist i operate in facts but nevertheless something like that connected me and there are other versions that feel much more country or older that don't connect with me as much but somehow those say to me this somehow captured and bottled a piece of the experience that originally gave birth to these songs wherever it was. And so I think that's what I and I've learned to look for that in other music just in my own personal life. I, I very much gravitate toward music that, uh, the, that transports me somewhere rather than just something that I find pleasing. And I think that, that that's why I chose that uh that version is something that I quite like. And I think the whole album is is worth exploring because it's folk music in a, a way that you don't hear very often.
0: Well, cool. Thanks for hipping me to that, that album, which I never would have come across on my own. I look forward to diving into the full thing. And I want to close with uh, your closing of the book, the, the last bit of the afterword. And, and you say, you know, in the end, I remain a pretender, a blue American with a loud shirt and a camera touring Red America. Yes, I have felt the music thrilled as it coursed through me. But the village never let me in, nor should it. I'm not a native, nor like Dylan, a musical expeditionist. I'm not even a musician. But like those who built the folk revival, I set out to define my Americanness through authenticity. Instead, I have found that I am defined by the very hodgepodge that created me, the packaged, marketed, mongrel age that was the late 20th century. I can look back upon yesterday's, but only so much. I can crave mountains and hand fashioned music and two-lane roads to the horizon, but the mall and the interstate exit and the world wide web are my homes. Because of who I am, when and how I was born, I can view the folkways, but only at a distance, only from the highway." yeah when it comes to the house of the rising sun none of that matters the song is mine anyway like those who played and sang it far better than i did i claim it as my own for a brief moment i reach into the past as far as i am able i pick it up and i carry it and carry them into the future i hope they're watching so ted thanks so much for coming on uh the show and thanks so much for writing this book and telling the story the journey of american song the book is chasing the rising sun the journey of american song by ted anthony and thanks
1: Be sure and subscribe to the Let It Roll podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Podomatic, and check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at LetItRollcast. Come back next Monday when Steve Bergman joins Nate to discuss his new biography of Screaming Jay Hawkins. The Rising Sun, The Journey of an American Song, is published by Simon & Schuster. Please support our show by ordering via the Amazon referral link on our website, LetItRollPodcast.com.
2: Hey there, this is Tyrell Lisson, the host of the band History a new show that takes a deep dive into the legendary roots rock group, The Band. Perhaps one of the most overlooked groups in music history went from being a backing band to the legends like Ronnie Hawkins and Bob Dylan to creating some of the most influential music of the 1960s and 70s. The band is responsible for the back to basics approach to rock in the late 60s, foregoing psychedelia and acid pop of the day and influencing artists like the Beatles, the Rolling Stones and Eric Clapton to bring it back to the roots. This new podcast is here to peel back the curtain on the mysterious group that took the music world by storm. Not with press, fancy magazine covers, or massive tours, but with their music. Come and check it out. It's not easy being the one everyone counts on to keep your operation running, no matter the weather or supply chain hiccup. But we get you Raymond in Buffalo, Maria in Miami, and Jules in Troy. Taking control of everything that's under your control. At Granger, we're here for you, with high-quality supplies for every industry, plus real-time product availability and access to experts ready to help. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football.